It is 25 years and a bit since the United Kingdom's sovereignty over the city of Hong Kong was transferred to the People's Republic of China. The UK's lease was up. The final lowering of the Union flag on the shores of Victoria Harbour in 1997 was witnessed by Prince Charles, as he then was, Prime Minister Tony Blair and Hong Kong's last British governor, Chris Patton. The UK and China had negotiated a post-handover arrangement billed as one country, two systems. In theory, this would ensure that even as Hong Kong was incorporated into an authoritarian communist state, it would remain one of the world's great open cities. In practice, the Chinese Communist Party has had other ideas. In recent years especially, China has cracked down hard on Hong Kong. Such democracy as Hong Kong enjoyed has been largely dismantled. A new national security law provided cover for further repressions, as did a suspiciously rigid and long-lasting regime of COVID-19 restrictions. This week, Hong Kong announced a small step towards reopening, an end at last to mandatory hotel quarantine for people arriving in the city. It remains very much to be seen whether this is any kind of move towards restoring Hong Kong to anything resembling what it once was. Did we misjudge China's willingness to allow Hong Kong its rights and freedoms? Why is China happy to risk Hong Kong's economic prowess? What kind of future does Hong Kong now have? This is The Foreign Desk. If we look at the research, people recognising themselves as Hong Konger rather than Chinese have always been a high figure. For now, the identity of Chinese is growingly being defined by the Chinese Communist Party, being defined by Xi Jinping. And they say that if you don't love the Communist Party, then you are not Chinese. If you are Chinese, then you have to support them. Hong Kong is the only Chinese city with a free trading currency. It's got a robust stock market. It has a well-respected de facto central bank. And it's physically located on the doorstep, or some would say in China. If the world can recover from US-China relations being at a low, then there are things that will make it a useful place. If the Chinese government chooses to open its doors and make it a welcome spot for foreigners. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. My first guest is a leading pro-democracy activist from Hong Kong who now lives in exile here in London. Nathan Law became the youngest lawmaker in Hong Kong's history in 2016 when he was elected to serve aged 23 as a legislative councillor. After the passing of Beijing's controversial national security law, Nathan's party, Demosisto, which he founded alongside Joshua Wong and other student leaders, was disbanded. Nathan was later jailed for his participation in the Umbrella Movement. Nathan, let's start with why you're not in Hong Kong anymore. When did you decide to leave and why did you decide the time had come? 
I left Hong Kong a few days before the implementation of the national security law, which the law criminalized free speech and gives the government a very convenient legal tool to prosecute democratic activists. I knew that I would be targeted, so I had to leave Hong Kong in order to preserve a voice to continue to speak up for Hong Kong, which eventually uh, people in Hong Kong for now, under the threat of the national security law, they are unable to speak about anything on democratic movement or like criticizing the Chinese governments for their human rights abuses, etc. So um, I left in order to continue to preserve a voice for Hong Kong. And also, of course, for now, I'm wanted under the national security law and my asylum status was granted last year in the United Kingdom. A recurring motif of this episode is going to be people leaving Hong Kong, businesses leaving Hong Kong. Do you feel right now that that might have been a one-way trip? Hundreds of thousands of Hong Kong people have left the city Mm. since the implementation of the national security law. Many of them have relocated to the UK. And for them, I think a large part of them, they obviously don't want to go back to Hong Kong anymore because the place is just so strange for them. They used to live in Hong Kong where there was freedom of speech, where there was uh, political diversity, where you could march on the street and you didn't have fear to be arrested. But for now, everything changed. And for them, they would love to start their new life in somewhere else. But they also retain that idea that they want the old Hong Kong, the Hong Kong with freedom back. Let's go back a bit to that Hong Kong, which you spent most of your childhood in. You weren't born in Hong Kong. You were born in mainland China and and moved to Hong Kong as a child. But as you were growing up in Hong Kong, and this is not all that long ago, the handover has happened. The fact that it is being returned gradually to China is a fact of life. But how much of a sense did you have of how different Hong Kong was from China? We always knew that Hong Kong was different from China, we've got the one country, two system. The two systems manifest on currency, the governing structure, the legal system, but also different ways of life, different ways of seeing the world, different sets of system that gives us completely different freedoms. In Hong Kong, we knew that that one country, two system was meant to be a safe harbor that we can live as the way it used to be. But for now, it's obvious that Beijing determined to crack down the one country, two system and make both system look similar. For now, we will always say that there's no one country, two systems anymore. There's only one country, 1.3, 1.2 system. And you count the math alongside with the deterioration of freedom in Hong Kong. But during that period, and not just you, but I guess your social and professional circle, did it feel like a different national identity to you? Did you think of yourself as a citizen of Hong Kong rather than a citizen of China, or was it a case of being a bit of both? For Hong Kong people, we've always had a very strong local and unique identity. We've Mm. been through different history compared to mainland China, and we've got huge influence of the West. For us, we also see ourselves as a distinct group of people. So if we look at the research, the pool data, that people recognizing themselves as Hong Konger rather than Chinese have always been a high figure. So for me, I, I always reassert and identify myself as Hong Konger because for now, the identity of Chinese is growingly being defined by the Chinese Communist Party, being defined by Xi Jinping. And they say that if you don't love the Communist Party, then you are not Chinese. If you are Chinese, then you have to support them. 
that really make me feel very bad about being associated with it. So for now, I think that idea is shared by lots of Hong Kong people. There was an obvious expression of the friction between those two identities, I guess, in 2014 with what became known as the Umbrella Revolution, of which you were a major part. When you think back to that now, do you think it left a legacy? Did it either perhaps cause China to pause even slightly, or or is there an argument that in fact that it prompted China to accelerate its forcible amalgamation of Hong Kong because they thought, you know, if this idea takes root, then it might be harder to extinguish. With larger resistance, it comes with larger suppression. I, th- mm. I think we can all agree that is a kind of like universal theory for dictatorships. But it doesn't mean that resistance are wrong. For us, we were fighting for the democracy that Beijing promised us. The reason why Hong Kong people silently accepted the fact that we would be going back to Chinese sovereignty in 1997 was because they promised us that after 1997, Hong Kong would gradually move towards democracy. We can elect our city's leader. We can elect all the members of our legislature. But in 2014, Beijing denied to honor that promise. And for now, they even roll back the progress that they've done in our legislature. Basically, all of the members are appointed by Beijing because they're is no room for meaningful participation from the opposition camp. The city's leader is, of course, appointed by Beijing. And you can definitely see the reason why Hong Kong people went to the street and resist. The Umbrella Movement or Umbrella Revolution took place in 2014, indeed gave a lesson to Hong Kong people, which we implemented the idea of civil disobedience, which sometimes if the law is unjust, we can march down to the street, we can violate the law in order to demonstrate justice. A bit after that, in 2016, 2017, you went on this extraordinary trajectory during which you were elected to the Legislative Council, very shortly afterwards disqualified from participating in the Legislative Council, and very shortly after that, actually imprisoned. When you embarked on that course of participating in Hong Kong's democracy such as it then was, were you actually thinking, I can get elected and perhaps do something here, or was the idea to actually demonstrate what a sham the whole thing is? Well, back in 2016, there were still around half of the seats that were elected by direct elections. So I was one of the popularly elected legislators. By then, we definitely think that we would see the platform of the Legislative Council as a way of manifest our ideas of resistance. It amplified our voice, our chance on the street. But definitely after the disqualification, after Beijing intervened into our system and basically kicked out the legislators that they didn't like. And I went to jail for the Mm. participation of the 2014 movement. This definitely was a big blow to me. And for me, it it was a very difficult time that you turned from an honorable parliamentarian to an inmate in just one month. But um, when you look back in retrospect, I think those experiences really nurtured me as an activist. In your daily life, you wouldn't interact with gangster squats or, or, or drug dealers as much as you were in prison, like, but they are part of the society. And as a representative or as a public servant, as you consider yourself, understanding them is also a big part of the lessons that you have to take. 
So I, I think looking back, it, it made me a better activist. It gave me a sense of understanding that I can navigate all these difficult paths and retain the idea that I, I'm still going, I'm still believing in the faith. I think that was a blessing for me, actually. Well, just finally, then, if we think of the next decade or so, what's your idea realistically of a best case scenario? What is the best possible status, the best possible outcome for Hong Kong? And what role do you hope to play in that from outside it? The future of Hong Kong is closely correlated to the path of the Chinese Communist Party. For the past few years, they've been growing much more authoritarian, much more dictatorial, and that frequency radiated to Hong Kong and made Hong Kong into a much more authoritarian state. I don't think that in the following five years, there will be big changes in Hong Kong and there will be big changes in the Chinese Communist Party. But when we look at uh, the status of the Chinese economy, Chinese socioeconomic situation, we will definitely see that the CCP could face a huge legitimacy crisis in the middle term future and whether that could bring up opportunity or possibility for a more free Hong Kong and more open Hong Kong and China that could determine the future of Hong Kong. Nathan, thank you for joining us. That was the pro-democracy activist Nathan Law. His book, Freedom, How We Lose It and How We Fight Back, is available now in paperback. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. Hong Kong was first ceded to Britain in 1842, after the First Opium War. It wasn't the first former British territory to be decoupled from the empire, but it might have been the only one on which a clock was always running. For a look back at Hong Kong's history, I'm joined now by Steve Chang, director of the China Institute at SOAS and author of A Modern History of Hong Kong, 1841 to 1997. Steve, let's start back at the beginning. How and why did Hong Kong come to be British? Well, it happened in three stages. It started in the 1830s and 40s when the UK fought the war with China basically over the Chinese requirements that the British envoy to China will need to perform the humiliating kowtow. And there will also trade between China and the British Empire, including opium. The second one was a follow-up to the First War, because the First War did not resolve the issue of opium trade, and there were other difficulties of diplomatic relations. And it resulted in the ceding of the tip of the Kowloon Peninsula to the British colony of Hong Kong. And the third one happens in 1898, when the UK, following a scramble for concessions in China, secure a lease for 99 years of what became known in Hong Kong as the New Territories, which forms about 90% of the territories of the colony of Hong Kong. But that initial agreement, which China was never happy about, how much duress was China under when it agreed that lease? Well, China was clearly under duress in the scramble for concessions. Mm. In most cases, other European powers were asking for permanent secession of Chinese territories. And the British Empire, having the lion's share of the China market, actually wanted to keep the China market open to all and therefore only leased the new territories 
in order not to trigger further territorial demands from China by other European powers. So yes, China was under duress, but the lease was a favor to China, and they knew that. So you think World War II was quite a significant break in that trajectory there, not least, I guess, because Hong Kong was occupied by Japan from 1941 to 46. Well, the Second World War was absolutely a critical turning point. War in the Pacific has been a bogey threatening the world for many years. The rich possessions of the Western powers are now in mortal danger. And Japan's most deadly thrust was seen to be at Hong Kong as we received our first pictures from the Crown Colony since the declaration of Far Eastern War. Kowloon and Victoria. Sampans swinging idly in waters that are now the scene of the latest aggression. Because even though British Hong Kong before the Second World War was still quite different from China, there was a complete free movement of people, particularly of Chinese ancestry between Hong Kong and mainland China. So the way of living were not all that different. But the coming to power of the Communist Party closing the Chinese border, allowing the population in Hong Kong to become settled, and for the first time, the ethnic Chinese in Hong Kong, the overwhelming majority of the population, developed a sense of their own identity and way of life, which was a mix of the British and the Chinese way And that's very, very different from the communist approach to living in China itself. By the 1980s and the 90s, people in Hong Kong would think of their own core values. And their core values include things like the rule of law, the respect for individual freedom and dignity. It was the kind of support for democracy without a democratic political system actually in place which is very different from that in China. Now, they did feel that they were also some kind of Chinese, but it was a different kind of Chinese from the Chinese living on the mainland. And so you had a strong sense of us and them. They are kind of like cousins rather than brothers. So throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, was Hong Kong able to completely tune out the extraordinary upheavals that were occurring within the People's Republic of China? Did one affect the other in any real sense at all? Through the 50s and 60s and the 70s, Hong Kong was shielded from some of the most turbulent events that happened in China itself. For example, the land reforms in China in the early 1950s when Two million people were executed on the mainland, didn't affect Hong Kong that much. The great famines of the great lead forward from 1959 to 1962, when over 40 million people in China were starved to death, it didn't affect Hong Kong. Or the Cultural Revolution of 1966 to 76. The great Supreme Commander, Chairman Mao, issued a world-shaking call to us. You should pay attention to state affairs and carry the great proletarian cultural revolution through to the end. The red torrents of the great proletarian cultural revolution are sweeping the country and shaking the whole world. Chairman Mao says, Marxism consists of thousands of truths, but they all boil down to one phrase. It's right to rebel. 
particularly in the intensive period of 66 and 67, it didn't affect Hong Kong that much. But Hong Kong was at the receiving end of those events in China. When the Great Famine was happening in China, people in Hong Kong, even poor people, were sending food and other things to their relatives in China. In the Cultural Revolution, they were fishing out dead bodies from the harbour that had flowed down the Pearl River, and they suffered a year of disturbance when the Maoists tried to challenge the colonial authority in Hong Kong, when in fact your ethnic Chinese, by and large, rallied around and supported the colonial administration without much love, but they supported colonial administration because the colonial administration was providing them with stability, good order, and freedoms to do what they wanted to do. We started out talking about the duress that China was under when it agreed the 99-year lease in 1898. When we come towards the expiry of that lease in 1997, was the UK sort of in the opposite position? Did the UK have really any kind of negotiating position at all? Well, the UK had a very bad hand to play because China was a rising power and in terms of the geography and the national strength of the United Kingdom in the early 1980s, China could physically just take over Hong Kong and there was very little the United Kingdom could do about it. And therefore, the negotiations was very difficult. The end result was not what people in Hong Kong would have liked, but it was something that people in Hong Kong thought was tolerable that they could live with. It has been the greatest honour and privilege of my life to share your home for five years and to have some responsibility for your future. Now, Hong Kong people are to run Hong Kong. That is the promise and that is the unshakable destiny. So it was a good out of a very bad situation. So the idea underpinning that deal was the one country, two systems idea, which held that though Hong Kong would be returned to China, it would still, to a large extent, be allowed to continue being Hong Kong. Do you think that the Communist Party's leadership was serious about that even at the time? Is it one of those things where their position has hardened as they've understood that they're actually even stronger than they were in 1997? The Communist Party of China totally intends to uphold the one country, two systems, as it understands it. It has no intention of upholding the one country, two system model as the United Kingdom and the people of Hong Kong understand it. But they were prepared until about 2017 to accept the reality of a one formula two interpretations, and they basically never fully agreed to the British or Hong Kong or international understanding of the one country, two systems, but they did not openly challenge that. They simply act in accordance with their own interpretation. But after 2017, when Xi Jinping had consolidated his power and changed the paradigm of not seeing Hong Kong simply as a special administrative region, but as part of the greater Bay Area of China, then basically they started to say that the Sino-British agreement over Hong Kong was merely a historical document 
that no longer applies. So effectively saying the British interpretation of the one country, two systems is now obsolete. Steve, thank you for joining us. That was Steve Chang, director of the China Institute at SOAS. Steve's book, A Modern History of Hong Kong, 1841 to 1997, is available now in paperback. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. There was, until quite recently, a conventional wisdom that China would never lean too hard on Hong Kong because Hong Kong was too economically valuable. Did that change? And if so, why? Joining me now from California is Tara Joseph, a consultant at TAJ Global. Tara formerly served as president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong and as president of the Foreign Correspondence Club. Tara, let's start with Hong Kong's status as a financial hub as it now is. How much of prime Hong Kong at its peak still remains? Well, there's definitely an infrastructure that remains and a robust financial system uh, and also a fair amount of trade going on. But its international reputation has been pummeled and badly beaten. It's going to take a lot of work for Hong Kong to be able to restore that reputation. A lot of that has to do with connectivity and the ability to travel in and out of Hong Kong. I can't stress how important that is for the business community. You have left Hong Kong yourself. Just wondering if you could give us a sense of how very far from alone you have been in that over the last few years. What have you noticed about the numbers of people and organisations either leaving or downsizing? And what kind of people and what kind of organisations have been heading for the exits? Well, I'm very far from alone in terms of individuals leaving Hong Kong. So many people from the United States have left Hong Kong that I've actually started an organization called the Hong Kong Alumni Network because many people have come back. And these are people who, like myself, lived in Hong Kong for many years and considered Hong Kong their home. Now, when it comes to companies leaving Hong Kong, it's a little bit more difficult to define because companies aren't posting it on their websites or making a big song and dance about leaving. What's happening is many executives are leaving or moving to Singapore. Lots of different departments and areas of businesses are quietly moving to Singapore or moving things back to other countries. So it's very hard to actually pick out who's gone and how many people have gone. And I think companies are doing that on purpose because of course they don't want to rile the Chinese government and make things even more difficult for themselves. Because after all, China is a very large economy and many people are invested in doing business there. But one of the things that for many decades drove that prosperity of Hong Kong and that dynamism of Hong Kong was that it was one of those cities that people went to basically to have a crack at it in particular fields. It was in that respect similar to somewhere like London or Los Angeles or or New York or if you have a banjo and a dream, Nashville. Is that all over for Hong Kong? Is it still going to be one of those places that people from all over the world think of and, and think? I'm going to go there and take my shot? I don't know if that can be restored. Many people are seeing Hong Kong as no longer the place. But of course, we have to wait and give it time. 
uh, to see what actually happens as things develop. There is one more issue that I would like to bring out that does hamper, dampen Hong Kong as a great uh, city of the future. And that is right now US-China relations, British-China relations, and increasingly European-China relations are not in a good place. And in addition to Hong Kong, you've got a lot of worries over Taiwan and whether China will invade Taiwan. You've got issues in the South China Sea. And that is also something that will keep people from really wanting to say, hey, I'm going to make a go of it and go out to Hong Kong because it's a freewheeling, easy place to go. There's a lot of political risk surrounding uh, the area right now. I mean, nevertheless, as you suggested earlier, Hong Kong does still have a very solid infrastructure as a financial centre. It does have a tradition of dynamism and reinvention. Are we perhaps writing it off too early if we're writing it off? Could it perhaps recover? Well, it is a very important financial centre. And despite all the difficulties that I've been mentioning and a very sober view of Hong Kong, it is a major gateway and one of the most important, if not the most important financial centre in all of Asia. Hong Kong is the only Chinese city with a free trading currency. It's got a robust stock market. It has a, I should say, well-respected de facto central bank. And it's physically located on the doorstep, or some would say in China. So those things count for a lot. And if the world can recover from US-China relations being at a low, if Asia and China can recover from COVID, then there are things that will make it a useful place. If the Chinese government chooses to open its doors and make it a welcome spot for foreigners. What becomes of those great, definitive, defining Hong Kong-based Hong Kong brands, Cathay Pacific, Mandarin Oriental, do they have a future? Well, Cathay's taken a big hit. There was a, a situation a few years ago where Swire was called up to Beijing and slapped on the wrist for suggesting at Cathay Pacific that people working there could actually voice their opinion over protests. And the Cathay Pacific airline, which used to be a real strong marker of the pride and success of Hong Kong, is now partly owned by the Hong Kong government. So it's a very different ballgame for Cathay Pacific. The other company that you haven't mentioned, of course, is HSBC, which is a hugely important company for Hong Kong and for China in terms of trade. There's a lot of difficulty for HSBC in the UK and what it's doing to ensure its future in China where its profits are related. That's not going to go away very soon. And that's something that puts Hong Kong, HSBC and brands like that under pressure. 
As someone who lived in Hong Kong for a very long time, you will have been familiar with the reassurance that was uttered a lot building up to the handover in 1997 and certainly afterwards that China would never really crack down on Hong Kong too severely because Hong Kong was too economically valuable. And whatever you might think of the Chinese Communist Party, they're not stupid. They're not going to strangle the goose which is laying all these golden eggs, etc. Why did that change? Was it just that China became so prosperous that whatever Hong Kong contributed didn't matter all that much to it or started mattering less? Or did we overestimate the degree to which China was willing to place your economy above ideology? I would say ideology has a huge amount to do with it. And the rapid changes in Hong Kong took place after the people of Hong Kong protested and decided that they wanted to show their own teeth and their own identity as Hong Kongers. Hong Kong people will not keep silence under the suppression of President Xi and the chief executive Carrie Lam. And I do remember one night during the 2019 protests when protesters threw dark paint at the emblem of the Chinese Communist Party in front of the liaison office. And I remember saying to myself, that's it. Beijing is not going to accept this kind of rebellion. Tara Joseph, thank you for joining us on The Foreign Desk. Finally, on today's show, among those leaving Hong Kong is James Chambers, Monocle's Hong Kong bureau chief and Asia editor. He sent us this reflection of his time there. When you live in Hong Kong, as I have done for the last eight years, you will come across plenty of superstitions, omens and irrational beliefs. But Lee's field has to take the biscuit. According to this theory which has been repeated to me countless times. Hong Kong's richest man, Li Ka-shing, has a magic force field at his disposal that he can throw up around the city whenever a typhoon is approaching and stop these extreme weather patterns from wreaking havoc on his myriad of businesses. Every time a typhoon suddenly veers away from Hong Kong or one of these tropical storms makes landfall on a weekend, it is seen as proof of Li's field in action. The belief is so commonplace that the official weather service, known here as the Hong Kong Observatory, has in the past felt compelled to deny its existence and reassure the public that they issue warning signals to protect lives, not Mr. Lee's profit and loss account. Obviously, the Lee's field theory is a total myth. I feel daft even having to say that. Nevertheless, This urban legend does touch on two powerful forces that have been a constant throughout the history of Hong Kong, typhoons and tycoons. These two phenomena, one natural, the other man-made, have been a fixture of my time here as well, and it doesn't matter who you are, there is just no escaping them. When a T8 or T10 typhoon strikes, everything stops, and we must all shelter at home whether that's a mansion on the peak or a subdivided flat in Kowloon. Likewise, spend $10 in this city, and most, if not all of the money, will eventually find its way into the pocket of one of the handful of billionaires who build, own, 
and operate almost every major business in this town. Typhoons and tycoons in Hong Kong are as certain as death and taxes everywhere else in the world. But as the city ponders an uncertain future, and the Chinese Communist Party takes a more direct role in matters of government, one of the questions around here is whether these two universal truths are here to stay. Typhoons, I can quite confidently wager, are not going anywhere. We may have just got through this year's storm season, but they will be back next summer and every summer after that. The CCP is no more able to control Mother Nature than Li Ka-shing, at least not yet anyway. A typhoon hit Hong Kong during President Xi Jinping's symbolic visit in July for the 25th anniversary of the handover, cancelling all outdoor celebrations and pretty much raining all over his parade. The political power and influence of the tycoons, on the other hand, may well have peaked in Hong Kong, and their control over the local economy is looking increasingly at odds with the interests of Beijing. For Xi Jinping and the central government, the protests in 2019 were caused by a chronic lack of affordable housing. Young people can't buy a tiny apartment or start a family. And it was these frustrations, so says the CCP, that caused them to throw petrol bombs at the police, rather than the fugitive bill, the right to vote, or the defense of Hong Kong's way of life. Beijing was quick to point the finger of blame at the tycoons for selling ever smaller flats at ever higher prices. And it may only be a matter of time before the central government decides to intervene in the local economy, just as it does on the mainland, and just as it did with the political system in Hong Kong. The end of the tycoon era in Hong Kong would be no bad thing, of course, provided Beijing could be trusted to come up with a more transparent, fairer, and more accountable alternative. Hong Kong is renowned for being uber-capitalist and one of the freest economies in the world, when in actual fact, a few family businesses call the shots, and much of the economy operates like a cartel. Billionaire businessmen and women enjoy a very cosy relationship with the government, and exercise a huge say in the running of Hong Kong. These power brokers support the status quo, stifle competition, and help keep a lid on local demands for universal suffrage, all in the interests of economic stability. In 58 years, Li Kaohsiung has gone from having nothing to controlling four listed companies that are now worth 400 billion Hong Kong dollars. His story is a testimony to the economic miracle that Hong Kong has created since the end of the war. The 94-year-old Li Kaohsiung is the archetypal Hong Kong tycoon. Millions of people live in his apartments, shop at his supermarkets, use his electricity and connect via his phone network. His story of arriving from the mainland, buying a plastic flower factory and eventually taking control of one of the colonial-era British conglomerates is the stuff of local legend. And his nickname, Superman, speaks to his actual business prowess 
as much as his fabled magical powers. For decades, Li has had a direct line to the top guys in Beijing. But all that appears to have changed under Xi Jinping. When Xi first visited Hong Kong as president in 2017, he shook hands with Mr. Li on stage in what was seen as a very deliberate display of Superman standing in Beijing. This time around, however, Li wasn't even in the room during Xi's visit, and many familiar faces from his first generation of tycoons were also missing. Officially, COVID-19 restrictions meant each tycoon family could only send one representative. And since the senior Li retired from running his empire in 2018, his son went in his place. A plausible explanation, but that didn't stop the conjecture or the conspiracy theories. Li was being punished by Beijing, they said, for showing some sympathy for the protesters in 2019, instead of condemning them outright. It's a plea uh, to have a peaceful solution uh, to this crisis right now. He's also faced criticism from the mainland media for investing more of his money in foreign jurisdictions like the UK. In short, Superman is no longer red enough for the new patriotic era, and he can no longer be trusted to act in China's best interests. The huge sway Li used to hold over the selection of Hong Kong's chief executive, right up until 2017, was watered down last year during Beijing's sweeping reforms of the electoral system. And this year, the job of running the city was given to a policeman with no ties to the Hong Kong business establishment and a track record for following Beijing's orders. Whatever really happened, Li's absence from the political stage represents a major changing of the guard. Many of the first generation of tycoons, icons of this city's rise, have passed away during my time here. And their sons and daughters don't hold the same sway in Beijing, nor in the public's imagination. It is hard to imagine a Hong Kong that is not run for profit by a few extremely wealthy tycoons. But that day is a lot closer now than it was in 1997. And one thing is for certain. If Beijing does decide to directly intervene in the economy to speed things along, then these masters of the universe will all be wishing that Li's magical force field really did exist. For Monocle in Hong Kong, I'm James Chambers. That was Monocle's Hong Kong Bureau Chief, James Chambers. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. Don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.